Thank you. I'd like you to turn to the book of Philippians. Let me read verses 1 through 11. I'm going to just give you a heads up. We're not going to get to it, but I'm going to read it anyway because it's always good to hear it twice. We'll hear it again next week. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Reading God's word, brothers and sisters. Kelly and I were in Israel in 2006, and we were on this grand tour of Israel. First time we had been over there. Uh, and at one point, they took us to a monastery that was out in the Judean wilderness. And this monastery was at the bottom of a 1,500-foot deep wadi. You had to walk down the, these, these narrow pathways to get down there. And it, it, it'd take a half hour to walk down. Uh, there were guys at the top that were offering donkey rides down. You could get a donkey ride down for 10 bucks. We didn't need that. We're walking down, you know, we're going downhill. Well, those same guys were down at the bottom of the hill uh, when we came out, and the hill was really steep, and the ride up was 20 bucks. Unless you decided not to get on the donkey at the monastery. And the further up you got, the higher the price got. <laughs> So Kelly finally decided to get on about, you know, of course, I didn't do that. I didn't need that. You know, I think the donkey was dragging me the last hundred yards or so. But Kelly decided to get on. It was 30 bucks. <laughs> we were halfway up. But we got down to the bottom of, the, of the, the gorge, and we're in there, and they're taking us to tour this monastery, and they're making all these jokes about, you know, he's a new guy. He has to go for groceries and everything. There's no way to get down there other than to walk down this path. And so uh, our, the, the guy that organized our leader, another pastor in the area, was pontificating on something. And uh, I'm kind of standing in the back, and I'm standing next to the monk who's leading us through the whole thing. And I turned to him, and I said, what's it like? He said, what's it like? He said, what would you feel like if you lost everything? And I looked at him, and I said, well, I... I don't know. And you know, funny thoughts start running through your head. What happens? What would, ha what would I do if I lost everything? That's the question of Philippians. What would you do if you lost everything? Now, uh, I, I wanted to just kind of slow down because the first in a series, we're going to go through the whole book. We'll go through it verse by verse. But I wanted to share with you some of the prep work that I've done 
in getting ready. So you kind of get a peek under the hood at how, how I approach a series. And so I'm going to share some of this background with you. Uh, so we're not going to get to verses 1 through 11 today. We'll do that uh, next week. The, uh, uh, and, and, you know, that, that'll begin the, the first part of the exposition of Philippians. But for today, for today Paul, Philippians was written by Paul. It was late in his career, so he'd been through a bunch of stuff. And it was written to a church that was very special in his heart. We'll see how special as we go along. Written to a church that was special in his heart, and even though it was very small, it was able to accomplish some pretty incredible things. So our sermon today is called Small and Mighty, and I think it has some, some application to us. Maybe we'll see some, something of ourselves in here. So Philippi is in Macedonia. Let me show you the map and what that looks like. Uh, So it's up in northern Greece. When Kelly and I were over there in 2010, uh, we were actually 20 kilometers from Philippi. We were able to visit. Uh, So it's perched right in the middle of Macedonia, uh, situated on the side of a mountain. And through this valley that it overlooks, the, the Via Ignatia, one of the main arteries east and west, uh, between Rome and the east uh, was right there. So this is very strategic. Uh, there were gold mines nearby, so it was a very rich town. Uh, it was a Roman colony, and it was populated, by and large, by retired Roman military leaders. So it was also a very, uh, a very organized place. Uh, it was defended my, uh, with, with the incredible strength. It was strategic, and it was influential because literally, if you wanted to go to Rome from anywhere in the east, you had to go through the valley. Uh, I mean, it was the only road that got there, and you had to pass by Philippi, and they kind of oversaw the whole thing. So the Jews in Philippi, were oppressed by the Romans. Now, we know there were struggles, you know, as the Jews and the Romans uh, began to work together. By the time Jesus came around, the Jews were kind of working with the Romans, making some compromises so that uh, they could uh, continue to practice their religion. But they weren't liked by the Romans, mostly because the Jews represented and worshipped one true God and didn't really want to worship the emperor. They would do it in a tolerating fashion, but they didn't worship Caesar. So uh, there were not, weren't many Jews in Philippi. They were a very, very small minority. Uh, there were so few that there was no synagogue in Philippi. So when Paul gets there, all he could find was a group of women outside the city praying, probably by a river. You see that in Acts 16. So Paul started the church here with that group of women And the Jews are a distinct minority in the community. And the new Christian church that Paul starts draws on that Jewish community. But they were a minority within a minority. So they're not many people at all. And so the new church now is even more disliked by the Romans. And they're also disdained by the few Jews that are in town. They've got a rough road to hoe here. They were under incredible oppression. Had a, a lot of challenges ahead, not the least of which, that, you know, as we saw uh, rise up in 1 John, some of Paul's later readings, not the least of which was this false teaching that was beginning to rise up uh, in the middle of the first century, 50 to 60 AD or so. So we had all these false teachers running around, and some of it sounded good. People were being swayed to do this and do that. So what we have, though, is this small, 
church in Philippi that is besieged, facing challenges, and they were in an environment where it was going to be very difficult for them to grow. And worse yet, Paul got in trouble while he was there setting up this church. This seer, this medium uh, woman came across his path, and he exercised the demon from this woman. And the guys in town that were making money off her telling the future got really upset, and they had Paul arrested, and he was thrown in prison. So their leaders in prison, and you know, in case you think that that might be a pleasant place, here's what the prison cell looked like. We got a chance to stand in front of that. There's nothing in there. There's not even a place to sit down. And when they lock you in there, that's where you stay, if you understand what I'm saying. It was a pretty rough time. So tough that when Paul writes his letter to the Thessalonians, the first one, he says this in chapter 2, verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. So while Paul's in prison, there's an earthquake. And people are running all over the place, and the jailer's about ready to kill himself. And Paul says, don't kill yourself, we're still here. The jailer is so moved by that, he converts. He becomes a Christian. Paul had to leave Philippi, headed toward Thessalonica. He was going to continue on through Macedonia, go down through Greece, and he left the new church in Philippi. But that was going to be his base of operations for the gospel in Macedonia. Stayed in touch with them. They turn out to be one of the major, if not the largest supporters of Paul's ministry. And by the time, by the time Paul writes his letter to the Philippians, he's in prison again. Most probably in Rome. Some people think maybe he was in Ephesus, but there was no evidence of him being in Ephesus in prison. So, but, but I want you to think about this, because if indeed he's in Rome, if that's true, Paul is awaiting execution. He knows they're going to come for him. You take a look at Second Timothy, he says, come and see me quick, fast. Bring my books, bring my coat. They're going to kill him. He's going to be martyred. He knows it. Yet in his letter, he only mentions his imprisonment in passing. I think this is incredible. Paul's not saying, hey, organize a rally. Get me out of here. They say, oh, do a petition. Get on social media. Tell everybody how unjust this is. Somebody plead my case. Somebody come and help me. He hardly even mentions it other than as a tool for the advancement of the gospel. So Paul knows that this is the last letter that he will write to the Philippians. And he wants to share four important themes. So these are scattered throughout the book. Bear with me. Um, You can take notes if you're worried that I might take something out of context. You know how important context is to us. Amen? You can check the context when you get together for lunch this afternoon. But the first theme that he wants to share, we're just going through this one at a time. I'm not going to give them all to you ahead of time. Is Christian unity. Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Does that describe a body of Christ? Does that describe who we are? You know, we may have our differences, amen? But when it comes down to the Warrington Town Festival, to stories in the park, to missionary outreach, by the way, our mission team got together and decided we're going to make a generous donation to uh, the relief efforts in Maui through Reach Global, the EFCA. That's what you're doing. That's what we're doing as a church. So this is standing side by side. This is the unity of Christ reaching out into the world to be part of the gospel. Paul also says in chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We'll spend some time on that when we get to it. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's a message for our culture today, amen? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud and that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul said, even though that we're separated, we're still one body. We're still united in Christ. Unity is vital to the church but not so vital that it requires us to dilute the gospel. Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you as in no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now what he's talking about is look out for the influences of the world that will come in and try and change you. Because that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be the witness and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Unity is important. We do that as a body. Our collective efforts as we gather together to build the kingdom of God and be servants to him are are united, we we do it as one, but we don't allow the world to change what we're doing. We don't allow the world to come in and go, you know what, i got a really good growth plan for you. You sign up for $2,500 for a year and we'll tell you how to get more people in. I know how to get more people in. You know, when I worked at a car dealership, the manager came to me and said, I need to get a whole bunch of people here in two weeks. Can you do that? I said, sure. That okay, you're at it. So I just put a big ad and said, come in today and get a free cell phone. We had 2,000 people. And we gave away 2,000 cell phones. Nobody bought a car. See, that's what happens. That's what happens when you begin using worldly ways to run the church. The world comes in, and as long as you continue to use worldly ways to keep them there, they'll stay. But as soon as you start talking about scripture, salvation, obedience, and that sort of thing, they're gone. 
So we don't sacrifice unity by compromising the gospel. He said, don't be distracted. It's all about the gospel. Verse 7 of chapter 3. For whatever gain I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as something to grieve over. Right? Suffer the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish. Everything I had, everything I've worked my whole life for is rubbish. Why? In order that I might gain Christ. Wow. See the gospel. The gospel is our mission. That's our calling. And it's worth sacrificing everything for. We're not here. Listen carefully. We're not here to find ourselves. God's like, find yourself. You're right there. Okay? So we're not here to establish our identity. We're not here to get rich. And I got to tell you something. You know, God can make all those things happen. Amen? There's nothing wrong with being rich. But when you think that's the goal, there's a problem. It's the same thing with our health, isn't it? God doesn't promise us that we're going to be healthy all of our life. If he chooses to do that, that's great. Praise God. Amen? But if we get sick, it doesn't mean that God's given up. It doesn't mean that that we're not saved. It doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. It's part of being life, isn't it? Somebody called me and said, oh, this is happening, this is happening. Oh, my, all these things are happening. What do you have to say? I said, I'm sorry, that's life. <laughs> things like that happen. Oh, I think I've done something terrible. I think God is punishing me. No, 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 no. Jesus absorbed your punishment. Jesus absorbed your punishment. So we don't get distracted by those things that people would distract us with. So we're not here to get rich. We're not here to become influential. We're not here to look attractive to the world. And let me tell you something. We're not here to judge the world, and we're not here to endorse a political party. Ooh, that's painful. Paul didn't go to Rome to correct the Romans on their form of government. He was there for the gospel. Every time he got put in front of a leader, what did he do? He preached the gospel. You got Felix and Agrippa sitting in front of him. They go, well, you keep on talking, we're going to become Christians. And Paul's like, yeah, I'd like to be able to see you do Christians just like me, except for these chains. Nothing wrong with voting. Nothing wrong with being involved in politics. I encourage it. You know, I've told you before, we got election season come up. We'll be talking more about this. You need to vote with your ballot in one hand and your scriptures in the other hand. But when that becomes the goal, when that becomes our focus, you might as well kick the gospel to the curb. We are here to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ and salvation through him alone. And we should avoid getting distracted by these other things that will tear us away from that. Because in Philippians 3.18, 
Paul says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So as a church, we stand together, united. And brothers and sisters, we have an eternal message. Paul's going to talk about suffering unjustly. Philippians 1.13. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. This is Paul's imprisonment. Listen to this. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Do you see what Paul's doing there? He's in prison in Rome. The imperial guard is watching over him, and he's not bargaining with them. He's not saying, can you get me out of here? He's not saying, can you give me an extra portion? He is witnessing Christ to those who are imprisoning him. He's not hating them. He's not judging them. He's not going, you wait to see what happens to you for what you're doing to me. You know, I'm a man of God, and God's going to get you for this. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ in his imprisonment. Verse 14 says, And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's in prison not for committing a crime. They can't convict him for that. He's there for Christ for the sake of the gospel. And in prison, he's witnessing to everybody who listen to him. In verse, chapter 1, verse 17, he says, the former, and he's talking about those in the church who preach Christ through envy or rivalry. He said, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul's in prison. There are those in the church. There are those in the church that are taking advantage of Paul being incarcerated. And they're saying things about him. They're saying, you know what? He must have done something wrong. The only reason he'd be in prison is if he did something wrong. I don't know if you like his teaching or not, but I wouldn't listen to him. Look where it got him. It could get you in the same place. Paul would say, I hope so. And I hope when you get there, you do the same thing I do. You talk to him about Jesus. Yikes. You know, the amazing thing is, this comes from people that are supposed to be one in Christ with Paul. This it, is why, why I don't think it's a good idea to criticize other ministries, brothers and sisters. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we've got, there are whistleblowers all over the place, become kind of trendy. There are ministries that analyze other ministries to see what's wrong with them. One of the great influences in my life, I had to begin to moderate on because there was so much criticism of other preachers and other ministries. That's not what we're here for. We're not here to send up the warning clear and go, don't go to that church, come to our church. I mean, you get everybody doing that and all we're going to advance in the world is confusion, not the gospel. Paul's being victimized by people in his own church. And the Philippians, they get it. They understand suffering. 
Take it, uh, chapter 1, verse 28, first half. It said, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. There are opponents in Philippi. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. That's on them, but of your salvation and that from God. Don't forget, you've been saved by God. Don't worry about what they're saying about you. Continue to proclaim the gospel. God will take care of them. He hasn't made you the watchdog over everybody. So despite the suffering, Paul's filled with joy. This is throughout the entire book. You can see in, in, in chapter 1, verse 4, chapter, uh, verse 18, verse 25. It's in chapter 2. It's in chapter 3. And there's more out there. And Paul isn't saying, he's not saying that suffering is good. He's not saying, oh, yeah, you, you just paint a smiley face on it, be, uh, everything will be fine. Actually, suffering, the, the suffering of the other believers grieves Paul. Uh, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 28, he says, I am the more eager to send him, he's talking about Aphrodite, who was ill and near death, and that brought Paul what he called sorrow upon sorrow. So he didn't say, well, Aphrodite, you're going to have to get over this, you know, because you're suffering for Christ. This is all a good thing. Paul is grieving over this. He says, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Paul may be less anxious because Aphrodite is now healthy enough to travel. And as tough as suffering is, Paul says God will use suffering for the sake of his kingdom. Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. God uses hardship for his kingdom. And it gives, it gives his people, and, and here, here's where things begin to make sense for us. If, if our job is to be messengers of the gospel, if our job is to talk about a resurrected Christ, salvation through him alone, our suffering gives us a chance to literally shine. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world. Did you know that you shine? Are you aware of the fact that you shine? I mean, this works on an individual basis. And what it really means is that you attract people's attention. You should be attracting people's attention. My mom once told me, I, yeah, I was trying to explain the gospel again to my mother after several attempts, and she said, I believe all that. I said, like, oh, great. She goes, but I'm not fanatical about it like you are. <laughs> I said, I am. We shine. That's the great thing about shining individually. When we get together, we become this incredible beam of light that shines upon the world. You shine. And in your suffering, when people hear what's going on in your life, when they see what's happening, your Christian witness. Not, not, and, and again, this is not, oh, don't worry, it's all going to be fine, I'm okay. It's okay to say I hurt. Amen? It's okay to say I hurt, but I trust that God will work this out. My faith is in him. 
Oh, I'm going to go to the doctor when I'm sick because God has given us doctors. I'm going to take medicine when I'm sick because God has given us medicine. But my faith ultimately is not in that doctor, not in that medicine. My faith is not in my 401k. It's not in the advice I'm getting from my friends. My faith is in God to use whatever situation I am in to allow me to shine. Wow. So the next time you go walking outside those doors, feel like you're a flashlight. Amen? Where was I? (laughs) Oh, the third theme. Paul's going to explore, oh, this is a good one. The relationship between grace and works. I love this. It's a sticky issue, isn't it? And it's one that's really hard to understand. And Paul starts by clearly pointing towards the day that Jesus is going to return and what our posture should be until then. Uh, now, this is in Philippians 1, 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When we unpack that, we're going to have a good time with it. Uh, because it's God who begins the work and God who finishes the work. But then in 2.16, he says, holding fast to the word of life, So now he's talking about how to do this, how to work through this time until Jesus comes, holding fast to the word of life, holding fast to the scripture, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So for that day, he talks about that day's coming. Work to get it. We'll talk about that in just a second. But he says that that day is reserved for those who Work at obeying. Oh, no, we don't like that. (laughs) Oh, I'm not under the law. No, no, we're not under the consequences of the law. But look what Paul says in Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, since believers are in Christ, we have this grace that we've received, and Paul says, don't waste it. We're going to get deep into this, but what he's saying is, now that you received it, you should be able to demonstrate it. There should be something different about you. There should be something different about the way you walk through this world. People should be able to look at you and go, What is there different about him? Well, he's received the grace of God. That's working out your salvation. And so as as we begin to do that, because we're in Christ, our reward for that level of obedience is the same as Christ's. And Paul describes the reward that Christ receives Right here in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's us. That's us too. We're one with him. We're joined to him inextricably. God has done something supernatural. And he said, because Christ was obedient, I'm going to exalt all of you. Wow. 
Wow. Furthermore, God will respond to the Philippians' generosity and their obedience by supplying a few of their needs. Right? Here's what the scripture said. And my God, Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply a couple needs of yours. Well, I'm, what, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't read this. What does it say? <laughs> my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean every want. It means every need. Just as sure as readers of God's grace, after all this talk of obedience, surprisingly, God tells them that on the day that the Lord returns, they will be acquitted, not by anything they've done, but by the righteousness of Christ. Philippians 3, 9. We be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Our obedience. Listen carefully. I just want you to bake on this until we get to this passage. Our obedience is God's work in us. You understand that? You understand how that sets you free? God is working in you to make you obedient. Oh, you can fight him. The promise is he's going to perfect it. He's going to perfect it in you. He's going to perfect it in me. I'm not very good at being obedient. I don't know, maybe you're a lot better than I am. I'm not very good at that. I can beat myself up over it. I can fret over it. I can worry about whether or not I've offended God so much that he's given up on me. I can question my salvation. But Paul's telling us, if you've had that stirring in the Holy Spirit in you, if you felt that longing at some point to be closer to him, if you've been sitting alone at night and you had questions, I think I'll read my Bible. That's the Holy Spirit. That's not you figuring things out. We don't have that capability. That's the Holy Spirit. The guilt that you feel over not doing something the Scriptures say that you should do is the evidence of your salvation. This Holy Spirit saying, you know, you shouldn't have done that. And we've heard it before, but God's not up there with some kind of Tick marks going, oh, bad, 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 good, 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 good. Oh, I I don't know. God's saying that you should be obedient because I've given you grace. There should be some demonstration of grace in your life. But ultimately, your eternal destination doesn't depend on how well you do. It depends on how well Jesus did. And he was perfect. Wow. Wow. Our obedience is God's work in us. And that's, the, that's one of the primary messages. You know, most letters will start out with what we call a head and a tail, 
There'll be some message at the beginning of the letter of the book and another similar message at the end. And the head and tail of Philippians is grace. Grace. We see it in chapter 1, verse 2. In chapter 4, verse 23, take a look at it after lunch. God saves us by his sovereign grace. But he expects us to be obedient as recipients of that grace. Now, Paul doesn't resolve, and we need to recognize that there is a scriptural tension between grace and works. I mean, Paul talks about it, faith without, uh, works without faith are dead. James says faith without works is dead. And we try to kind of pit them against each other and figure out which one is right. They're both right. <laughs> grace and works are linked together. They come with each other. And there's a tension there that's kind of hard for us to figure out. And we need to recognize that tension. It's okay. It's okay. The the tension will be resolved at some point. But we've received grace, and that's what saves us. So our fourth theme is, Paul's going to talk about how the church relates to the culture. It's very contemporary. He doesn't advocate retreating from the world, uh, but he wants us to engage in it. Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. That it, The world is paying attention. Philippians 4.22. All the saints greet you, especially those, watch this, of Caesar's household. God is, is witnessing through Paul to the people that are surrounding Caesar. <laughs> you want to have some influence in Washington? Get them saved. Get them saved. Go down and talk to Senate pages and messengers and staff members. Get them converted and let them go to the senators and the congressmen, the president and everybody else. You want to change things at Disney? Get the board of directors at Disney saved. Yeah, we can do all of the boycotts we want. We can punish them for not thinking like we do. We can run around with signs and we can gather a million people down in Washington, D.C. to express our discontent, or we can be the light that shines the truth on the evil doings of the world. I hate boycotts. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I know some people believe in them. It's okay. You're not doomed if you're doing a boycott, but it's literally pointing a finger at people and saying, I'm more righteous than you are. And so let that bake with you for a while. So we're supposed to engage Caesar's household, the imperial guard. The church is called to be a presence and a witness, Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights to the world. And we are supposed to do that, and we're supposed to look around us for the good that we can see. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the word for think there is immerse yourself in these things. Surround yourself with these things. Don't be surrounded by all the other stuff. 
Don't let people tell you what to be angry about. Don't let people tell you what to hate. Be the light and the love and the salt of the earth that you're called to be. Don't engage in those things. All they do is distract you from what we're called to do, be messengers of the gospel. Look for the good. Set our minds on things above. But at the same time, we're not supposed to be naive, Philippians 3.15. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So we're turning to God for our guidance. In another letter, Paul reminds us to keep in mind that the whole world, regardless of what we see going on around us, regardless of what's happening over in the Mideast or in Russia or in China or any of that, all of it, all of it belongs to God. All of it is his. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, everything, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Christ is God's chosen agent to bring the world back into order and for it to be reconciled to him, and we are Christ's agent. We shouldn't be naive about that. It's all tough stuff. It's all hard work. But the rewards are great. And for me... The book is defined right there in the middle. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. So our series, just because I want to encourage everybody, is called The Loss of All Things. That's our Sunday morning church growth plan. Come in and hear about the loss of all things. That monk, he said, what would you do if you lost everything? And it, it, really, it really threw me for a loop because I, I don't want to lose everything. <laughs> but he said, it's far more freeing than anything you could ever imagine. He said, everything. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm at the bottom of a gorge, and it's like 110 degrees outside. They've got no air conditioning. I, I mean, it literally, they, they've got to walk up this hill and then travel into Jerusalem or Jericho, 20 miles either way, to get food and water. And this guy says, the loss of everything is far more freeing than you can ever imagine. Everything is in the hands of God. He was there because that's where God wanted him to be. And I think one of the reasons he was there is so he could tell me that. (laughs) So that a few years later, I could tell you. Why is he telling you? Who are you going to tell? Listen, here's the message. Paul wants us to know that there is nothing, nothing in your life, nothing in the world to compare to what God has for his children in eternity. It dulls in comparison. Whatever we may lose, 
and we will lose things. Whatever grief we will go through, and we will grieve over things. Whatever disappointments that we may experience, whatever loss we have, whatever regrets we may have, all of it gets washed away when we stand in glory and behold him face to face. That's the message of Philippians. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that there is an end game. Lord, we give you praise that you have that firmly in your hand, confessing that if it were in ours, we would fumble it every time, Lord. Lord, our, our faith, our trust is in you. We recognize that you are sovereign, but we also recognize, Father, that you call for a response to the grace that you've given us. Oh, Lord, we also confess that only by the presence and power of your spirit are we able to even respond. It's all you, Father. It's all you. We give you all praise, all glory. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now we pray, Father, that you would bless our, our luncheon. Father, bless the hands that are down there preparing it right now. Bless our fellowship, Father. And pray, Father, as we leave this place, you would cause us to carry only that which is from you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to have lunch downstairs. Uh, we've got a couple of visitors. You guys are welcome to join us. We've got plenty of food. Uh, Diana makes me those little eggs. Somebody keep me an egg, okay? Don't eat all the eggs. The, thank you. And uh, so... Uh, if you're not a member, you're welcome to go downstairs and start lunch. Uh, if you're a member, we'd ask you to come forward. Uh, we're going to be voting on the elders today. And I think Pat is going to coordinate that for us. Pat, will you come up here? So thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back with Philippians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 11 next week. Praise God. See you downstairs. If you have any questions, I'll be over here.